The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's a great fortune, I think, that we have a place and we have these wise teachings from the Buddha and other teachers who have been inspired by the Buddhist teaching, teachings, and that we get to come together and reflect on them and see how they can come alive in our own experience, how they can illuminate and be helpful in our own experience. And that takes some effort. And this is a very important and um, sort of central part of the Buddhist Studies program is that there is a study component. There's this component of interacting with our peers here in the group, in large group and in small group every other week. And then most importantly, there's this direct application of the teachings to our experience where we're using these ideas, right? They are concepts and ideas and we're applying them or using them to better understand and ex- and uh, connect, I guess we could say, with our own experience and see whether that application of the teachings to our experience demonstrates or illuminates something about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. And so for these eight weeks, we're going to be looking more specifically at the Buddhist teachings on karma. uh, Simply known as cause and effect, but more how Intentional action of thought, intentional action in terms of words we speak, intentional actions in terms of deeds we undertake, that those actions, those intentional actions, actions done with volition, they leave an impression on the mind. And the Buddha had some a lot to say about opening and living in accordance, opening to this truth of karma, this natural law of karma, that how our mind thinks, what we say and what we do leaves an impression. And sometimes that impression not only is felt here in our mind, our heart, but it also affects those around us. And this is, you know, it's funny, it it, it kind of leaves two flavors in the mind, like, oh my God, now you're telling me I'm also, I have to be responsible for every moment of what my mind is thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing, because that's intense. But it also liberates, you know, the more we understand this, it liberates us from helplessness, or nihilistic thinking that nothing matters. Because the basic teaching of karma is that it matters. It really matters what the mind is doing, what the mouth is saying, what the body is, how the body is participating in the moment. It really matters. How do we know it matters? Because when we develop some mindfulness, some stability of awareness, we can directly feel and see and know the impression that our actions are leaving behind. 
Like if I do something really wholesome, just a simple but beautiful expression of kindness or forgiveness, then in the next moment, the mind that is there, knowing the experience, being in the moment, that mind is the one, is the mind that, you know, it's the continuation or it's the mind that we say in Buddhism more, we say it's the mind that was conditioned by that beautiful action from the previous moment. So who I am, in conventional language we say, who I am, I'm the guy, I'm the person who was there doing that, that moment before. We're literally, in this moment, the person who's done those was there in those previous moments. That's who we are. So that's what we can notice. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is something we can definitely feel. When we do something really unwise, do you notice in the next moment, I'm the person who did that really unwise thing? This is what it feels like to have done that spoken that, thought that thing in the moment before or the years before or whatever. This is the heart that is conditioned by that or continuing from that. So to do this work together, you know, we do have some etiquette in the Buddhist studies course. It started out back in, I think, 98 maybe, somewhere around there, give or take a year, you know, and it was a relatively small group. Some of you were around back then. So some of you have cycled through this. used to be a five-year curriculum. Now it's about a six-year curriculum where we're just going through a lot of the teachings of the Buddha. There's a chair in the middle right here, if you'd prefer that. There's more chairs off to the side as well. But of course, people come in at any point in that six-year curriculum. It's not like there's a beginning or an end. And the way I like to think of it is the way I heard Bhikkhu Bodhi, this well-known Western Buddhist monk and a well-known translator of the Buddhist teachings. And Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about the different maps or the different system the Buddha used as how they used to do aerial photographs in order to kind of make maps and get a sense of the land. You know, they just fly planes over and they'd have this camera and they'd take a lot of pictures and then they'd line the pictures up because this photograph might overlap with this photograph and this photograph. But you kind of line them up and you line up all those photographs and then you get a sense of the landscape of our heart and mind or the way it is. Or as we'll be chanting in a moment, the Dharma, the Dhamma. This word you hear a lot, it's kind of become part of the English language now, although often, you know, in a, either a superficial way or just in a sort of a funny way. But Dharma means, in, in sort of maybe the best use for us right now, it means the way it is. It's a word that points not to the idea of the way it is, but to the experience, the direct experiencing of the body and mind, not the mental interpretation. 
So the way we wake up to Dharma is we have these maps, and one of the central maps is karma. And through the course of the six years of the Buddhist studies curriculum, we cover all these different maps, the wholesome qualities in terms of the seven factors of awakening and the unwholesome qualities of mind, like the five hindrances and the four noble truths, which are talking about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. Just so many different maps, and there's quite a bit of overlap. So those who have been doing these programs off and on or steadily, you'll know, you know, you, that's the whole point. We're just reviewing the material and reviewing the material. It's really the Buddha's articulation of the human heart, the human mind as a natural process. And the real skill the Buddha had, he didn't have a different mind or heart necessarily, but he had this personality or this skill set that allowed him to both have deep insight, but then to articulate that what he woke up to, you know, in studying his own mind, his own heart, in a way that even though the Buddha, of course, lived in a different time, different culture, bound by his own culture, right? But still that articulation is useful for us. And of course, we're also benefiting from all the other teachers, you know, that we'll be reading, studying, and all the teachers that have affected my study and on practice and your study and practice. You know, we're bringing all this to bear to illuminate our own lived experience of our body-mind. In order to learn a thing or two about the causes for suffering and the causes for release, both in our heart and in the world. And it's interesting that they're not really different. I remember reading from Ajahn Jayasaro. He's a Western, another Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition. And he says about ethical conduct, sila, this part of this very essential part of practice, and very much connected to the Buddhist teachings on karma. <coughs> Intentional actions matter. He says something like, when you think that what's good for you and what's good for others are somehow different, you know, you might not, you you know, it might be good to have some humility that you don't quite yet understand what's good for you and good for others. You know, when we just presume that, okay, in this moment, It seems like what's really good for me is going to be harmful for others. Or if I really take care of others, I'm going to lose out. That's what he's saying is, in those moments, it's good if you could bring up some humility. Like, maybe I'm not reading the moment clearly or carefully enough. Maybe I need to, you know, practice being present, being more alert, more relaxed, more interested, less uh, oppressed by my fixed ideas of what's true right now and more taking a fresh look at what's going on. Maybe there's a way for me to be in the moment, to understand the moment, to participate, engage the moment that will be both good for me and good for others. And that also, you'll see that that point really relates as we start to dig into the Buddhist teachings on karma, that somehow we don't need to separate those two things out. 
Because otherwise, it, like if we're parents or if we're partners or if we're an activist in the world, it, it just, we have this idea of sacrifice, this wrong idea of sacrifice. I'm sacrificing myself for the better, for the, um, the betterment of others. As opposed to really holding out of a way of being in the moment that leaves a beautiful, healing, enlivening impression in our own heart and contributes to the releasing and freedom and justice even for others. That keeps us interested, doesn't it? It's like when we're even things like shopping. Can we shop in a way that takes care of ourselves and others? Can we use the resources of this planet in a way? Can we relate to our partners and our friends? Can we earn a living in a way that takes care of us and takes care of others? Can we speak in a way that takes care of ourselves and others? See, and again, it's, it's not like a, a metaphysical truth. Yes, <laughs> that's the answer, or no. But that question and the curiosity that comes out of that question, I'm suggesting, and I think Ajahn Jayasaro is suggesting that that's a very functional or very useful question to be living with. Is there a way for me to do my life, to speak, to think, act that's good for me and others, contributes to my own well-being and the well-being of others. And this is really what we mean by making karma front and center. So a few things about the etiquette with the group. So obviously, you know, we meet every Monday night. You found yourself here, so you must know that. There's an optional sit at seven. New people might not, not know that. So come at 7 if you want to come for the optional sit. Even if you're a few minutes late, just come in into the room. If you get here at 5 after 7, don't come into the room. Sit outside, sit in the lobby, sit in the community room, do backflips outside or whatever you want to do. But let's keep the room quiet for people who are able to get here before 5 after 7. And then the bell rings usually about 725 The last bell is usually loud enough that you can hear it in the lobby or some people, you'll see people leaving to use the bathroom. That means you can come on in if you didn't get here for the 7 o'clock sit. Okay? So 7 o'clock, optional sit. We start at 7.30 with everybody. Of course, you know, we have a group of whatever this is, 80 folks, 90 folks signed up for the class. Some of you have business or work obligations, family obligations, There's no reason to feel guilty if you don't come if you have a good reason not to come. If you don't have a good reason not to come, if you want to take the class, you have to come when you don't have a good reason not to be here. Because otherwise you shouldn't take the class. Because a lot of the programs at Common Ground are drop-in. And you can just come whenever you want to the drop-in programs. But the Buddhist studies were trying to build a sense of community But don't feel badly if you have a family or work obligation or some other, you're sick or something like that. Just stay home. That's why we record the class. You can listen if you want. Be nice if you did. Listen later in the week when it's up on the internet. The readings you can do, of course. 
But when you can come, the obligation is to come. And this is especially true because sometimes I notice people seemingly, I think, sneaking out before we have our small groups. So every other week, usually on the even weeks, next week, for example, week two, the last half an hour or so, we meet in small groups. And I set it up, and you, you know, usually the groups are three, sometimes four. It's a really important time where for about three minutes, you're just sharing what you're learning in your practice. And for some of you, that comes easily, and for some of you, that's really difficult. But it's an important part of what we're doing. We're taking responsibility to share what we're learning. Even if you're not learning every, anything, you share that. Right, And that actually brings a sense of responsibility to each other. It helps us to sit every day, to read some of the material. Some of you will read everything I put out there and you'll find your own resources. Others of you won't have that much time or just aren't that inclined to study, but study some. That's part of the obligation, even if it's relatively minimal. And I'll try in the weekly emails that I send out to highlight the readings that I think might be most accessible or most useful. But I'll put out more readings. And some of the readings will be different, talk about the teachings differently than I I do. So don't expect uniformity in how people understand the Buddhist teachings or what Buddhist teachings they highlight. It will be different. Like it or not, we have to learn how to be independent, to hear what people have to say, our friends, our teachers, the teachers we don't know personally, but we're reading or listening to. And we have to make sense. And, and guess, who, guess who gets the final word? Our own experience. And it's imperfect because it's not you know, definitive because what our experience is, is in part, the frame through which we're looking at our experience. Two things make up our experience as we know it. The experience and the mind that is knowing the experience. There's always filters. We always bring a filter, a view. But part of what we're learning is to recognize the view through which we're experiencing our experience, knowing our experience. Like I'm frustrated or I think Buddhism is stupid, or I think it's like always right, you know, or that's, this person's always right, that I just read this view, and so now I'm going to impose that on my experience, try to massage my experience to fit that thing I read. Right? But we start to pick up on this, and we learn how to, you know, mindfulness really, by definition, means opening to the moment with humility. Humility isn't a stance. Okay, we're going to be really humble. Humility is the absence of a fixed view. In in another way of saying humility is that we're interested. So even though we study, we get lots of ideas, the purpose of the ideas, mostly like the Buddha's ideas that exist as concepts, they mostly exist as a counterweight to our fixed views. So it's not like the Buddha's teachings on karma, that intentions matter, is meant for our mind to grasp as some ultimate truth. It's more as a counterweight to disturb and interrupt 
the habit of the mind. It doesn't matter. I can think that thought. I can, I can spin with aversion or greed or distraction and I can get away with it. That's what we think, right? I mean, what, why else would we dwell in aversion or dwell in greed or dwell in denial, distraction, delusion? We wouldn't do it if we didn't think it didn't matter. I mean, if we thought it mattered, we wouldn't do it. We don't think it matters. It's not that important. So then we get this big monstrous teaching that it matters, right? Everything matters. Every moment of mind matters. That's kind of... I thought this was about being relaxed (laughs) and just going with the flow and letting everything be. You know, that's that's why I came. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you know, we're being asked to do something else. So, it's really potent to have these times every two weeks where we're just sharing. And I encourage people, I'll, I'll put out in the weekly email to the group, before I forget, if you registered, you should have gotten an email from me this afternoon. If you didn't get an email from me this afternoon, about, I think about 5.30 at the latest, I sent it out. Print your email very neatly and we'll add you to the Google group the Buddhist Studies Google group. But most people, I mean, when you registered, you had to leave an email. If you didn't register, then, and you haven't been in Buddhist Studies before, I probably don't have your email. So afterward, come up and and write it out. So I'll send out some ideas for the small groups to kind of help focus your practice during the week. And then you can use that on our weeks where we're having small groups. Some people will even take some notes. It's really okay. It's not neurotic to want to be a little bit disciplined or take some responsibility to reflect on the theme every day when you're doing your formal practice and when you're reading and studying. And the way we read isn't like necessarily straight through. We'll read a little bit, maybe half a page, a paragraph, a couple pages, then put it down for a little bit and look at the mind. Be mindful of the mind and body and see what you just read, see how it illuminates or informs your experience. And then read a little bit more, and then take a few seconds and just be present with your mind and body. And then read a little bit more. So we're weaving in this reflection. So in the Buddhist studies classes, we're following this teaching of the Buddha where he says, wisdom has three parts. We get information hopefully from somebody who we've been paying attention to, so we have some sense that how they're living their life you know, is something to be respected. Like they seem to be at ease with the conditions of their life. They don't freak out with attachment when things are really good, take it personally, have a lot of pride, and then they don't react when things are really difficult, close down, act out, hate, with hate and aversion. Oh, maybe this person has found a way, living in a way, to be respected, to be listened to. So what do they have to say? I mean, this is kind of, we have this relationship with some of our teachers, and even though we don't know the Buddha, right, 
we have the sense that even what he says just makes sense and has lined up so much with my lived experience. So maybe I'll listen to this other thing he has to say about karma. So we listen. We just get some information. It's got to be on that level of concept. That's the only way we get a transference. I mean, maybe people sometimes think that we can get this sort of more subtle transmission from teachers, but it seems a lot of magical thinking to me, mostly. But we do get modeling, you know, by watching not just what they say, but also just observing them interact with their own life. And then we think about what we've read and what we've seen from our teachers, including teachers that through books and hearing talks, we think about it in terms of our own experience. So this is this contemplation, reflection piece. And then that sets up what we call, in this tradition, insight. That's what vipassana means. You might have heard that term. Common ground is a vipassana, or insight meditation center, coming out of early Buddhism. And you know, in the particular countries, it's called Theravada Buddhism. Right? But it's really this tradition of practitioners who are interested finding inspiration as much as and imperfectly as we can figure out this voice from this guy 2,600 years ago who had a lot of insight and this great capacity to articulate his insight. And so that's what Common Ground is, right? And so we're interested in that same following in the foot. Uh, prince in the footsteps of the Buddha. That's why we have it as our graphic for common ground because there's a sense of, oh yeah, what did he say happened? What did he say he came to understand about his mind? Let me check that out. Let me think about that. Let me reflect on that in terms of my own experience. And that sets up the mind seeing something it hasn't seen before. Now this is a non-conceptual thing. The conceptual part ends with the reflection contemplation. Insight is that word or vipassana we're pointing to experiences that are non-conceptual. We're seeing something directly. Now we may think about that insight the next moment with words, but the insight itself is the mind seeing something directly about the nature of experience or the nature of the mind that the mind didn't know before. It's a little, sometimes big, seismic shift in understanding. So now understanding might be on the level of concept, but it comes out of direct experience or insight. So when we hear about or read about karma and we think about it and we'll practice, we'll sit with our ideas, open to our experience through those, with those ideas, and we'll have little seismic shifts. How the mind is, you'll just find, you know, if you're really dedicated and do the work, you'll find even in this relatively short amount of time, eight weeks, that your understanding is different. What your mind is, how your mind relates, is not the mind that was relating at the beginning of the class. In the same way, for sure, those of you who've been at this for five, ten, some of you twenty, maybe even a couple of you more than twenty-five years, you can just Notice, I am not that person. I was, I'm not the person I was five years ago, ten years ago. 
definitely not the person I was 25 years ago. Now we can't say, well, this particular set changed everything. But we can have some real intuition that this process of getting information that challenges our existing ideas, thinking about that information, contemplating it in terms of our own experience, and having these little and sometimes big insights, direct experiences, that profoundly shift then the mind going forward. Because the direct experience, like I said, gets the final word. Like if I walk, and I got my compass, and I walk east, and I just keep walking east until I swim, and I keep swimming east until I walk, and I end up in the same place, right? It doesn't matter if 7 billion people think the world is flat. You know, I've done this thing. My direct experience tells me the world is round. It's a sphere. It's not this flat thing. And it's true. Like if we have direct experience, it doesn't really matter if people have other ideas. You know, we, we'd like maybe them to see it how we see it. But we, and we might keep quiet because we just don't want them telling us we're crazy. But if we have the direct experience, it doesn't really matter what other people think because direct experience rules. It governs the mind. And as people who are interested in sort of in find value in studying the Buddhist teachings, we're in particular interested in orienting or having allegiance with our direct experience. Dharma, that's what Dharma means. And in a way, it's, I mean, it's, it's not going to change. People are going to refer to these teachings and these practices as Buddhism or Buddhist practice. But the Buddha probably wouldn't like that. He'd, if, if we wanted to use a word just so that we're all kind of on the same page, regardless of what country we're from or what language we speak, he'd want us to use the word dharma. We're interested in dharma. We're interested in learning dharma. We're interested in being awake to the way it is. Because that's what it means to follow the Buddhist teachings. It's not about a religion. It's about a set of teachings that support living a life that's in allegiance, in alignment with the way it is. Instead of living a life that's in alignment with fixed ideas that we picked up through culture. Or who knows where we picked them up. <laughs> Maybe we made them up. But it's hard to make something up without the mind that was conditioned by culture, right? So we're just doing riffs on ideas and ways of being that have been done before. This is why insight changes things. Because insight arises not from a riff on a previous idea or a reaction to an existing idea. Insight comes from a process of a mind that has developed stability and clarity, this capacity to be in the present moment, to see things as they are. And that mind's just collecting raw data. And then that data eventually overwhelms whatever fixed idea you have about who you are, about what this is, about good and bad, about any fixed ideas. And that changes things. That's how like 
the Buddha, who was born in culture just like we were, conditioned by his culture just like we have been, but he stumbled upon a process, what we call you know, awareness practice, right? And that awareness practice allowed him to notice fixed views, notice thoughts, notice conditioned habits as something being known, which gives the mind some space from being conditioned by our thoughts, by views. I can't just get in there and get rid of views, but I can be aware of the views that are operating. You know, like if I'm feeling right now self-conscious and that's triggering the old conditioned habit to not be good enough, thinking I'm not good enough, but I've also developed this habit to be aware, I can realize, oh yeah, that's just that habit to not feel good enough. And in being aware, or maybe I'm just feeling a lot of rage because that's the conditioned habit. But I can be aware, oh, there's a lot of irritation. There's a lot of judgment, a lot of critical mind going on here. And it's just that being known. And it liberates the mind from experiencing the moment through that lens of aversion because wisdom knows that lens, that habit of perceiving through that lens is just that thing. And it gives the mind some space, some freedom. And that mind can then connect to know, be open to the experience as it is, see it as a natural process. And that changes, it begins to undermine the, the established views, the established ways of relating. Interestingly, that's the karmic act that has liberating consequences, right? Because karma is the teaching or the law that what the mind is doing, whether it's subtle like thinking or even understanding is a subtle action. Thinking, speaking, doing something in the world, right? So karma is the teaching that that stuff matters. It leaves an impression. So when we cultivate a mind, a stable awareness that sees things as they are, sees dharma the way it is, there's consequences. Right? There are karmic consequences to seeing clearly, not putting a spin, not being caught in likes and dislikes. Not, you can't get away from likes and dislikes, but the mind can be trained to not be confused by likes and dislikes pain and pleasure, right? That mind, when we practice, when we cultivate that way of being, and this is for each of us to check out, there are liberating consequences to acting in that way. And this is for us to check out starting this week. Like when, when I'm living out in the world doing my thing or sitting in meditation, but the mind is observing, is awake and aware of the moment as a natural process. Thoughts are coming and going. Sensations are coming and going. Other activities are coming and going. Right? And I'm observing that as a natural process. 
And so if I have some unskillful tendency arising, I'm just noticing that unskillful tendency. Or if I have a really beautiful tendency, I'm noticing that. Which means I'm aware that that tendency is unskillful or that tendency is skillful. Or same thing, if I notice it in you and you're being really generous, oh yeah, there's some intuition like, oh yeah, this is what's arising, this is what's being expressed through this person's body language and words and actions. And it seems like it's skillful, like in the direction of release of tension for her and for those around her. And if someone over here is being hateful or critical or whatever, right, we can learn by observing others in the same way or, you know, slightly different way than observing ourselves. And it just turns out, and this is again what we're checking out, being intimate, being aware of skillful and what's skillful and what's unskillful. But observing what's skillful and unskillful as a natural process. It's very hard, though, to see myself or to see another person in doing something that appears to be unskillful without personalizing what I'm doing is unskillful or personalizing what someone is doing is unskillful or skillful. But it, we can, the mind can be trained just to leave it where the mind is perceiving the skillfulness or unskillfulness imperfectly, never perfectly, but some intuition, oh yeah, this seems to be unskillful. Let me continue to observe to see whether that intuition is correct. Oh yeah, they are going directly to hell. You know, <laughs> things are going south for them. You know, or you know, things are really looking up for them. People around them seem to be at ease, seem to be happy. Oh yeah, that's skillful, that's unskillful. I mean, that's what we mean in Buddhism. When we use words like skillful, unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome, we're talking, it's a really uh, tautological term in the sense of it just means that things are lightening up if it's skillful. Suffering is diminishing if it's skillful. Suffering is increasing for everyone connected if it's unskillful. That's what it means. It's not some outside, like God or Santa Claus is determining, or oh, that's skillful and that's unskillful, and it exists in some other being's mind, like the truth of what's skillful and unskillful, what's just or unjust. No, we know directly, experientially. How do I know this is unskillful? Because the heart's getting tight, and my senses, those around me, they're suffering as well. How do I know this is skillful? My heart's... But the reason we need to continue to watch is we could be distracted. And so we may think my heart's released, but that's just on the surface. Like if I steal something from Helen when she's not looking, you know, I could be on the surface like delighting, like I have a white sweatshirt now. <laughs> you know? It looks like a hoodie, you know? And those are, I'm told, are cool. They have a hoodie. <laughs> but underneath, but I'm not that sensitive. Underneath, my heart could be contracted like, will she catch me? But I'm suppressing that sense of shame, having taken something that wasn't mine, right? Because I don't like that feeling. And I'm just thinking about, yeah, but when I wear this over here where Helen won't have any chance to see me, it's going to be great to have that to wear or something like that. 
better hold on to it. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that next week, that hiri otapara, um, the wholesome regret, wholesome concern, or what in the West, in English rather, we tum- sometimes call conscience, because this is part of the teaching on karma too. And so that's why we need to develop the sensitivity because then everything's impactful. Even when I, like I often used to think, um, when I, when Wynn, my partner, my wife, spouse, and started living together some 27 years ago, you know, that like if I don't say it out loud, it's not unskillful. <laughs> <laughs> but the trouble of living with a wise and sensitive human being, and also myself being sometimes sensitive, Right, is that my attitude, what I'm thinking, has implications. Even if I don't say it out loud, it's impactful. For sure, with my heart, and also those around me. And to sort of start to, like we don't, (laughs) one of my early teachers, I didn't get to study with Ruth Dennison much, but She's passed away now, but one of the early Western teachers in this tradition started a center in the desert outside of L.A., outside of Palm Springs. She had this great uh, German accent <laughs> where she was born. She says, said, uh, you don't get away with nothing, darling, because it's really true. It's like whatever arises in the mind leaves an impression. So if I'm like being critical, but I think I know enough not to say anything about it, right? Well, yeah, it's probably good not to say anything about it, act it out in some way. But what impression is there just from spinning internally with the critical mind and feeling justified? Like, yeah, you really should have done that. That really wasn't okay. What what does that leave behind? What sort of seeds have been planted? And that's what we're learning to take responsibility for. So I, I left the uh, uh, in the email that I sent out, and I'll resend it out for the people who didn't um, get it this afternoon. So leave your email up here at the end. I have an article written by Joseph Goldstein on karma. So you can read that, and there's several other things you can read for those who want to do more study. And, uh, and then the homework, like in pre- preparation for the small group, is to really get a sense, and, and don't force it, really be curious, like, does what the mind is doing matter? Does it matter the attitude of mind? what the mind is paying attention to, how it's paying attention to, what it's spinning with. Is the activity of the mind leaving an impression, leaving a trace? And what can I discern? What's the flavor of that trace or reverberation? Wholesome or unwholesome? In the direction direction of stress or in the direction of release? Just being interested in those questions is a huge step. 
And don't expect that you're going to figure it out, right? It's more about getting in the habit of being interested in those questions. What's the mind doing? And what is the result of what the mind is doing? What's the impression? What's the effect? What kind of person am I becoming given what my mind, my heart is doing? Like if we're stewing in some way, obsessing in some way, practicing denial in some way. And here's the important thing. We shouldn't assume we know what the mind is doing. Unfortunately, we only know what the mind is in the habit of letting us know. It's like that line, famous line. I don't know if you saw that movie. I don't even remember what it was called, but Jack Nicholson was like a general of Guantanamo. Is that right? And uh, there was some, it was a show, a legal show where the, some court case about somebody being held at Guantanamo and Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And it's kind of what the mind does to itself. It's like, I mean, it's habit. It's unconscious habit. But there's some unconscious habits of the mind that are basically saying, you can't handle the truth. So you get to see this part of what's going on. But we've created some unconscious defense systems that keep a lot of stuff behind closed doors because you can't handle the truth. And then that condemns us basically to this oppressive regime, which is like we're living under the oppressive domain of our habits. And it's really hard to break free. So we cultivate this mindful awareness, this sensitivity, what makes it really hard from the, for these oppressive ha- habits to keep things behind closed doors. And we begin to sense and see what the mind is doing. Oh. Oh. Like we were, um, Wynn and I, my wife and I, had a conversation the other day um, about our critical habits in terms of each other. (laughs) Mostly about me, but not entirely. I had my points too. (laughs) But... It's surprisingly like even for someone who's practiced a long time and considers himself, you know, like somebody who doesn't want to cause harm, you know, it's surprising how well defended our habits are, how well hidden, how well justified our habits of being critical, judgmental. Like, I mean, I'll just share some of my the defenses that arose. It wasn't me. They just arose in my mind like we're all judgmental. Right? It's just human nature to judge. I can't stop myself. You can't. You're judging me now for being judgmental. Right? And all. it's not like that stuff isn't true. It's true. All, I think that's all true to some degree at least. But the interesting thing in terms of liberating my mind and heart is to notice when the mind is relating in a critical way, in a judgmental way, to be actually curious. Is this helping me or anybody? Is it helping me or anybody? 
what's getting left behind? What's the karmic impression here? Is, is the, are the seeds that are being planted, like, is that who I want to become? Just on this very pragmatic level, do I want to become the person who's good at being critical or being self-righteous? Or, I mean, you could just fill in that blank, like whatever it is you catch yourself doing when you have a wise friend who's able, able to mirror it back to you in a way that you can hear it at least a little bit, and then you start to take a closer look, then you can ask that question, are these the kind of seeds I actually want to pra- uh, you know, cultivate, plant, so that I become the person who's good at this, more this way? Is that what I want to do with my life? If I do that over and over again, then who will I be in 20 years, 30 years? Do I want to be that person? What kind of person do what, what kind of seeds do I want to plant now so I become that kind of person later? And the thing is, when we do something with intention, that's the definition of karma. Karma means action done with intention, with volition. There's a sense of, yeah, I feel this way. I'm this way. I'm invested in this. But even we can do thoughts that with investment too, right? It's not just words and actions. That leaves it, like I've been saying, it leaves an impression. And we're cultivating this sensitivity like on this relative level, this ordinary level, I want to feel responsible for what's getting set in motion. This is really the actual, direct work of compassion. This is how we take care of ourselves and each other. We start to own what the mind is doing. That's what inspires us to get up a little earlier so we can sit, because we can't do this work unless the mind becomes more sensitive. And the mind won't become more sensitive until we practice being sensitive. And that's what our basic sitting practice is. We sit still, and we will sit before the end of the evening. You know, we'll s- stretch our legs and then we'll sit before we end. But, the, you know, when we're sitting still in a relaxed way, we're directly training the mind to be sensitive so we can wake up to the underlying law, as the Buddha calls it, that what the mind is doing, how the mind is relating, it matters. It matters. It's impactful. So we're observing that. We're not trying to control it. We just want to learn like how it works. Studying karma is studying how it works. How certain ways of being, certain ways of relating, certain thoughts, actions, words, leave traces. Oh, this is the kind of trace this leaves. This is the kind of trace this leaves. We tend to want to go immediately into fixing it, but we haven't done the initial research to know what is actually getting laid down. Okay, I'm going to start laying down good stuff. But we don't know yet how to lay down good stuff. So we have to do most of the emphasis is on paying attention. So let me leave it here and take some time for some questions and discussion, and then we'll take the last 
20 minutes or so, we'll do the chant. We'll stretch our legs, then we'll do the chant, and then we'll sit to end our evening together and study the mind, like I've been saying. But let's take maybe 10 minutes or so for any discussion that has come up from what I've said. And of course, we'll continue the conversation next week and have small groups where you'll be sharing what you've learned in studying the mind and the confidence maybe that's beginning to build that, oh yeah, what the mind is doing matters. And it's just from this continuity of awareness where you see what the mind is doing and you get some intuition or direct seeing like what's been set in motion, what seeds have been planted. But what questions come to mind or comments? Yeah, start us off, Tom. So at the beginning, um, you were talking about observing the mind, skillful versus unskillful behavior, reflecting on that. And that seemed kind of like a preview of conscience, which you said we're going to talk about a little bit more. What I, what I have noticed, and, and is a little bit confusing for me right now, is that uh, I have a mind that likes to take responsibility for everything. <laughs> um, and may be predisposed to, to interpret outcomes um, to unskillful behavior of myself um, and to the exclusion of, of seeing a larger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you could say anything. Uh, well, it, it seems just from the fact that you're sharing it, Tom, that you not only have seen it, but you have begin, begun to discern that it's not helping, right? And then can you, is it helpful, is it skillful to continue to see that pattern in our mind and to see just through the continuity of non-judging awareness, mindfulness, to continue to see, to collect data, this isn't helpful, this is a cause for stress, this is a squeeze on the heart. This makes others around me tight. Right? Because, and then the question is, is that discernment that this, ad- this attitude or this quality of mind is present and it causes stress, is seeing that skillful? Is that enlivening? Does that lighten the load? Not the doing of it, <laughs> But the seeing it and the seeing that it's unskillful. Do you know what I mean? This is an important point because a lot of our practice is seeing what's not skillful. Not the whole practice, because there's also seeing what's skillful. But a lot of what mindfulness reveals is what's not helpful. But that, theoretically, is good karma, right? Wholesome karma to notice the mind in that honest, clear, non-judging way, oh, this isn't helping. This is a cause for stress. This is causing others harm, right? Just to see that leaves an impression, like, honey, don't do that. That causes harm. 
So that person going forward, that mind going forward, is a wiser mind. But it just saw something that hurt. So pain either leads to the development of wisdom, which is liberating, or pain leads to reactivity, which leads to more pain. You know, reactivity meaning doing the same thing, doing something stupid, seeing it, and then hating myself, which is another stupid thing. Stupid in the sense of a cause for stress. So the interesting thing going forward now with this course is when you notice that, instead of really notice the difference between seeing the pattern and judging yourself, identifying with the not liking, being the one who doesn't want to be the one who did that, versus seeing the unskillful pattern and being the grateful one to have learned again, oh yeah, that's right, this doesn't help. I'm so glad to have this lesson. I might need it a few few more hundred thousand times (laughs) or maybe just a couple more times, but I'm really glad to have collected one more data point that this way of being, this way of relating isn't helpful. Does that make sense, Tom? Yeah, please, you want to pass the mic over? In uh, your definition of karma, or one of the definitions of karma, you said action done with volition or intention. So does that mean that action done without volition or intention is not karma? Or does it mean possibly that all action is done with intention and volition, but we just don't know what our intention or volition is? Is Yeah, because that really goes to the definition of delusion, is either we think intention doesn't matter, or we think there's no intention. That that action just I just said that. I mean, we say that sometimes when we, when someone's offended by something, we say, "Oh, I just said that." You know, this is another thing I've learned over the years. It's like I realize that every time I say something, there's intention. You know, these sort of seemingly innocent comments are not innocent at all. I'm just oblivious. And this is the thing: the torment of being mindful is that we see it all. We see it all, and it's really hard. But here's the thing, and we'll get there by week eight at least, but the more we study karma, the more overwhelming it is. It's like, oh my God, I, do I really want to see all of this? Do I really want to see all this? But the thing is, what starts to kick in, the more we study the mind in this more sensitive, careful way, is that we're responsible for the mind but it's not really anybody's mind. We're responsible, but it doesn't belong to anybody. We're responsible for this mind and body, this life, these circumstances, and the world that we're inhabiting, but it doesn't refer back to anybody. The reason we're responsible for it is it's liberating to be intimate, intimate, and it's terribly stressful to be living an embodied life and to not want to be embodied, to not want to be in relationship, right? That's real suffering. Like to be a sexual being, 
to be a social being, to have a mind and body, but to not want to like really be here. But if we're going to really be here, if we're going to be sensitive, if we're going to be awake, then we have to be a moral being. So we think, once we start to wake up to being a moral being, we think, I don't want to be a moral being. I don't want to be responsible. I just want comfort. But that's really stressful to want to avoid responsibility. It's like, I don't want to know how I'm participating in these cycles of oppression or racism or classism or sexism. You know, I just don't want to know about it. I just want to be my little bubble. I want to move someplace where I don't have to deal with all this stuff. I don't want to know that children, child labor laborers sort of were part of sewing my clothes or making the rug that I like to do my yoga on or you know any of these sort of things. I just don't or what happens to the trash that I throw away or and we think it's easier to not know. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, I'm, I know that feeling. It does seem easier to, to be insensitive or unaware until we start to pay attention of how stressful it is to be unaware. That denial is stressful. Ignorance is stressful. It just on the surface appears not stressful. And the thing is, when we start to notice the difference between numbness or disconnection and being intimate, nobody consciously chooses numbness. It, it can creep in as a habit and really dominate the mind, denial, distraction, numbness, you know, these different ways of not being mindfully aware. But when we start to ask the real question like, what helps, what's skillful, what leads to release, we see that numbness, distraction, denial don't work. So as challenging as it is to become more sensitive, more awake, more, in a sense, responsible, wisdom understands, the heart understands there's really no other way. If there were another way that was easier, please bring it up for the group. In fact, we'll pass the mic to you right now. But what people find, I think, what I find, others have found, is that when we start to take a closer and more honest look at our life, there's only one direction. And it's not like the Buddhist direction. It's about like being aware. And it makes sense. I mean, just on a conceptual level, intellectual level, does it, would it actually make sense? Like, oh yeah, okay, I got the secret of life, you know. Don't be here. You know, live your life, but don't show up for it. Find something that's really engaging. Line up one interesting novel after another or TV show after another or you know, provocative, gossiping conversation after another so you don't actually have to feel and see and be connected. I mean, nobody would believe that that would be the way to happiness. But it creeps in as our habits you know, when we're not living in an honest, sensitive, curious way, we can fall into those patterns of denial and distraction. And it's always this, like, oh, I'll get back to being awake. But right now I just need to crash, you know. And I do that, you know, I know. I indulge in sense pleasure. 
sense distraction. But I don't lie to myself anymore. Like, yeah, that's the way. You know, I say, oh yeah. You know, two steps forward, one step back. I don't really believe in the step back, but it seems like the momentum of habit is driving me that way anyway. And the question is, should I hate myself or should I be aware? So let me check. Like, does this help? How does this feel? You know, eating the second bowl of ice cream or watching the second hour of show that isn't of much value. You know, how does that feel? What does it what does it lay down in the heart? Because I'm here for you. You know, if it actually works, I'm all in. But I'm going to see if it works because I'm tired of betraying myself more and more. I'm not completely tired of betraying myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you know when I get there. So we have time for one more comment. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, Robert, please. I am very interested in community. And the reason for that is that I've grown up as a very independent individual person. And I'm currently reading with my meditation my favorite author, who is M. Scott Peck, and The Road Less Travel, and the series of books that he's written. And I have a meditation book of his, a daily meditation book, and it refers back to some of his readings. And I, when I first read it, I was enthused because it talked about community. And that's so important to me, even though I'm a loner. I absolutely know that community is essential. Yeah. And it's, it is the place where we learn because sometimes uh, with our self-destructive patterns, we can, we can have, we can fall into a mindset that it, I'm only harming myself. And it can allow us to continue cycling in ways, actions, thought, thinking patterns, lifestyles that are really um, self-destructive. But when we feel embedded in a community, you know, it's like we have a different sense of responsibility because it it does matter. We realize, like, I don't mind going to hell, but I don't want to be responsible for other people going to hell. You know, so if I let myself act out in a self-destructive way, what is that? Because we have to find our way back to, I don't care how hard it is, I'm not, like, it doesn't feel good to be contributing to suffering. I'm going to find the way because I don't want to contribute to suffering. And I think community, that sort of mutuality, really helps and it's really just saying what I said a, a while back where pretending that it doesn't matter, that I'm not in community, it doesn't, my life isn't contributing to suffering or doesn't matter for other people, right? That's sort of trying to let ourselves off the hook. I really think it does matter. I think it matters even if you're not interacting with people that much. I mean, there's sort of this, I mean, this might sound a little bit like magical thinking, but we're kind of in the same soup. You know, you really feel it when you're in the city. 
and there's just and then you leave and you go out sort of away from other people we're really we feel the sort of psychic soup that we're in we create it if we're around a lot of peaceful people we feel it we're around a lot of agitated people we feel it that's why we go into more wild spaces because there's just less neurotic energy so if we're in a self-hatred cycle or in a nihilistic cycle we're radiating that out if we're in a kind of a loving space that's what we're beaming out to the world and i'm not going to prove that you know i can't prove that to people but i think if you tune in you'll sense that it's what i was saying too you know earlier in terms of my relationship with my partner that just really learning that who i am what my mind is doing it affects me and the other person whether or not i say it out loud that little community of those two people it matters and how i am around the cat matters you know we're sharing space i mean we have words that sort of point to this and here's the most important point it's skillful to pretend that it matters and it's not and you can check this out and it's not skillful to pretend in any way you might pretend that it doesn't matter check out who you become when you have the attitude that it doesn't matter and do you want to become that person and when you have the attitude that it does matter notice who you become and whether that's the direction you want to move in your life and this is really goes right to the heart of the buddhist teachings they're very pragmatic in this way even things like rebirth which we'll talk about i think week 6 which you know there's a real debate like do you need to believe in rebirth well probably it's not good to believe in anything but it is good to have an open mind because the truth is we don't know but a more interesting question is what is the effect of staying open to the idea of rebirth and what is the effect on our mind to close our mind to the possibility of rebirth who do i become when my mind's open to the possibility of rebirth how do i show up in the world how do i relate who do i become how do i relate when i've closed my mind off to that possibility because it's like well i think i'm going to get away with being a jerk you know it's like i've been stealing i've been manipulating i've got my little nest egg i got my little gated community i got my little routine i've been stingy but i seem to have gotten away with it you know i don't cuz i'm not that sensitive so all i feel is what's on the surface and i don't notice maybe what's underneath the surface so what incentive does somebody have but if we feel like that one way or another whatever qualities we've cultivated in our in the heart will find a way to express themselves they're already expressing themselves and they'll continue to express themselves but then then we take a different kind of responsibility in our lives but let's leave it here so thanks for coming everyone this talk like all programs at common ground is offered freely in the spirit of generosity To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.